This episode is brought to you by the Device and Virtue podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Adam. On Device and Virtue, Chris and I argue about the wrongs and rights Christians face with technology in everyday life. From smartphones to evangelism chatbots. To that selfie stick Adam shouldn't have bought. It's nice. Subscribe at deviceandvirtue.com. Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Joel and Troy, and this is Revive Thoughts. It is the victory of life over death, a life everlasting, with which this temporal existence on earth cannot be compared. Of this we have reason to rejoice. Every week we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. Today we got another Martin Luther episode for you, and uh, we're changing up the format a little bit. I'm sure you may have noticed by now. We had to record this episode kind of in sections. We wanted to get an interview in with Brian Wolfmuller, but the schedules as such only allowed for uh, Troy to be able to interview him from his home there. So the interview's not in the studio, and I wasn't able to be there, but I still really think it's a, a solid listen. I found it really interesting when I was able to listen back to it. Some of the things they talked about I felt were kind of, I don't want to say controversy, but in contradiction to, to what I felt I knew about Luther and pop culture and, and things along those lines. So um, definitely, if nothing else, kind of more more views on Luther, more insight into who he was and how people are still learning from him and figuring out who he was as a person all these years later. So I know the sound quality is going to be a little bit different here, but I really think you're going to find this interview between Troy and Brian Wolfmuller interesting as they set up the, the sermon that we're going to hear today. Uh, Brian, if you don't mind, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and maybe why you enjoy the character of Martin Luther so much? Yeah, sure. I'm Brian Wolfe, the pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. And uh, I, I, Luther is a hero of mine uh, for a lot of different reasons. Um, but one is because he was a perpetual student of the Bible. He never, he never stopped mining the scriptures. He, I mean... He translated the entirety of the Old Testament and New Testament, including the Apocrypha, from the original languages into, into German. And uh, he says at one time, if you think of the Bible like a tree and the leaves as the words, I've, I've turned over every leaf. But he never got bored with it. He was always back to the scriptures, always learning, always studying. He, he cut his teeth on, for example, teaching the minor prophets at university and seminary. And the Psalms, he lectured in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And he was a he was a he was a biblical theologian. I don't think that Luther's biblical theology has gotten enough attention because he's seen as the reformer, which he was, as a um, as a, a modern man. That's how normally people think of him now because he stood on his conscience against all these great ancient institutions, and that's all fine. But uh, but he went back to the scriptures so that he was ready to preach and ready to to suffer and die. And so in that way, he's a, a hero of mine, and uh, he's helpful to me because he is always opening the scriptures and bringing us Christ. Uh, I've, I've yeah. said all, a lot of times that Luther is only going to be helpful if he brings us Christ, and he brings us Christ, and therefore he is helpful. <laughs> so the yeah. helpfulness of Luther is that he serves as a pastor and brings to us these green pastures of, of Christ in the scriptures. 
He said, uh, you say he served as a pastor. Actually, was something I want to ask you about. You know, I think we oftentimes look at Martin Luther and we think of Martin Luther. You like you said, the here I stand, I shall do no other, the big Reformation giant book writer. But I was wondering, is there anything you can tell us about, you know, maybe Martin Luther, the pastor, the preacher, the man that people would see week to week, or even, you know, the professor, just as a personal, uh, if you were a student of his or you were a congregant of his, what did you think of when you saw Martin Luther? Yeah, he was already famous in his day. He was, um, the University of Wittenberg was a pretty new university in a small town, although it was an important town because the elector of Saxony was there. So it kind of had an outsized importance. And that elector, Frederick the Wise, had established this Wittenberg University. And his two, and he, so he wanted famous professors to come to the university. And Martin Luther was certainly one of them. And also Philip Melanchthon was sought after, and it was mm. a big deal. And you can go and visit the Luther House now, the Melanchthon House now in Wittenberg. They were big houses. In fact, Luther was given the Augustinian Monastery as his home. So there was a there's an Augustinian Monastery in Wittenberg, but after Wittenberg embraced the Reformation, there was kind of there's no room in the inn for any monks or nuns. Yeah, that's kind of that sort of thing's over. So they had this huge, big, I mean, it's like a hotel, and they gave it to Luther, and he and his wife Katie looked after it, and he would always have students and people traveling through, always there, and he would be lecturing during the day. He He'd preach and he'd fill in for um, the the pastor there, Bugenhagen, at St. Mary's in Wittenberg, oftentimes when he was traveling, because he was almost like a bishop and superintendent. Uh, so Luther would preach a lot. He would write sermons to help the other pastors, and he'd do, do basically Bible studies and open theological conversations at night. So there's all these table talks for, basically, he, he had a boarding house for theology nerds, and he was all just <laughs> constantly doing theology. He was also traveling as well so he would travel to give presentations uh to to oversee disputes and even to kind of help reconcile people in different places so he was being used by the elector there in wittenberg um to to serve his kind of theological purpose to bring order to the church so he had a he had a lot going on yeah it's uh he has a lot going on one of the ways you can see that he has just been very busy. If I, if I, and, I, and maybe I heard this wrong, but I believe one of my seminary professors said if you were to write 90 words a minute for, I think it's something like maybe eight or 10 hours a day, it would take you what, like maybe 10 years, or it was some maybe over the top statistic to write down just to just copy word for word everything that Martin Luther wrote in his lifetime. Do you have, I mean, is that, is that true? And how does somebody, how is it possible that somebody was even able to just do that much writing while also, I mean, he was under intense persecution, under intense times. Do you have any insight as to how a person, how he was able to do that? Yeah, he worked himself uh, to the bone. You can see um, when he died in Eisleben, they brought him back through Halle to Wittenberg. And when he was in Halle, they did a death mask of him. So they took a plaster of his face and his hands and his right hand was curled like it was holding a pin, even in death. So he, he was, you know, they're famous the saying that Luther says, I was throwing ink at the devil. Mm. I, I, and people think that he actually took a, like an ink bottle and threw it at the devil. I, I think that's Luther talking about his writing. He's mm. throwing ink at the devil. He understood this as spiritual warfare, uh, his writing and publishing things. And he was a popular writer. And so as much as he could write the, the, appetite was there for it to be consumed so he was writing sermons he was writing bible studies he was writing letters he was writing um uh, i mean a lot of arguments and a lot of luther's writings were um captured by his students so for example there's um 
his Genesis commentary, which is eight volumes. Yes, eight volumes of a Genesis commentary. Luther didn't write that. Uh, he lectured, and those lecture mm. notes were written down, and then he oversaw their publication. Same with his Greater Galatians, a lot of his Psalm lectures. So he was, people knew that when they had Luther, they had something special going on. So they were already kind of writing down every word that he say. So a lot of his published works were, again, transcripts of his lectures, which were then turned into books under his, even they would, you know, have him double check. But I'm sure, I'm pretty sure Luther's like, they said, hey, could you read through this Genesis commentary to make sure it's what you said? And he'd be like, looks good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe he, he was, meticulously read every page, maybe. Yeah, yeah. He was moving fast. Okay. Now, you mentioned this, and I'm actually glad you did, because that was another question I actually had for you. As modern people, you know, the one thing that kind of stands out, one of the maybe points, there's two points I want to ask you as modern people, how we approach Martin Luther. One of them is, you know, he says he has maybe these encounters with I know, the devil or hears the voice of, of different things like that. If you, if you, uh, if I'm, and maybe I'm misquoting that, maybe I'm misunderstanding that, but I, 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 you know, he has heard these things. What do you think of that? Do you, do you, some people would, I mean, just kind of on the, on the one hand would want to write that off, but obviously Martin Luther, you know, would know, I don't think anybody would accuse him of being schizophrenic or crazy. He's clearly a very intelligent man with a very well rationed out idea. So what do you, what do you think we should make of that? Is that something um, especially as we apply it today, because there are other people who may say they hear the same things. And I, to me, I'm like, okay, I don't want to, a great example is Joan of Arc. She also believes she hears voices and stuff like that. How do we balance out the idea that Martin Luther thinks on the one hand, but also Joan of Arc? And I don't, does that make sense? That question yeah. I'm asking, making sense. So I don't know of a place where Luther talks about hearing the devil. Okay. Um, but that being said, every page of Luther mentions the devil. So he was he was fighting his whole life was spiritual warfare and mm -hmm. he understood it in that context, but um, he also was against what what one of the genius of things of Luther's theology was this understanding that it's the external word that has authority, and one of the big fights that he's fighting is against enthusiasm it's what he identifies as enthusiasm so under we just think of enthusiasm as being very excited but theological enthusiasm means that the internal word has an authority and maybe even over the external word so so for example the um the quakers would be examples of this where they don't preach they wait for someone to be moved by the holy spirit and then mm -hmm. they speak this was part of the radical reformation that was going on at the time of luther and he he said that every error comes from enthusiasm. That is listening hmm. to your heart rather than listening to the word of God. So Luther was always pointing us back to the external word of God. And so it's one of the, it's, for example, Zwingli had a dream or a vision that where Jesus came and said, my body's not in the supper. So Zwingli himself testifies to the fact that the body, of, that, that his theology of the Lord's Supper comes from a vision. Hmm. Luther is very unique in this way. He's, he never says, I had a vision. In fact, when he tells the story of how he discovered the gospel, he says, I was meditating on the text and I paid attention to the context, hmm. specifically Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And so Luther would be, in a lot of ways, an anti-mystical theologian always okay. pressing us back to the external uh, word of the text. That's very interesting. This is not actually originally in my notes, but thinking on that terms of enthusiasm, it, it reminded me, and maybe you won't, maybe we're not, we're not sure on this, but 
it kind of reminds me of one of the big criticisms of the Great Awakening when it was happening was that these people are too enthusiastic, they're too passionate. You know what's going on here, and there and there were things I think a lot of us would say today if we saw them. That's not you know maybe normal, not what I'm not what I'm used to when I go to church. Just out of curiosity, any ideas of what Martin Luther would say if he was seeing some of the reactions people were having to a Jonathan Edwards or a George Whitfield? Do you, and just, and this is an off the cuff question. There's no right answer probably. Mm -hmm, but, mm -hmm. yeah. So L Luther himself was very moved by his own theological reflection, you know, to often to times to tears and to joy. Uh, and yet uh, I, I think I could make a pretty solid case that Luther was always worried that our own experiences, our own thoughts, our own reason, even our own emotions would stand above the word of God. And my take on it, and I, I think I would reflect Luther on this, but th there's something that happens. So th theology is always looking for an assurance, for the assurance of salvation. There's something that happens when you lose the external word, the efficacy of the word of God, and the means of grace, baptism and the Lord's Supper as external assurances of God's kindness. And and my understanding, and I, I think this is a, a good reflection of Luther, is that the whole Protestant experience, so I'm gonna exclude Lutherans from Protestantism for sure. a moment. The whole Protestant experiment is to find comfort that is, it's to fill the void that's left when the sacraments are gone. Mm. So when you have a symbolic picture of baptism, a symbolic picture of the Lord's Supper, you you've you've emptied the sacraments of their of their assurance giving strength and then the whole protestant experience is to try to fill in that void again that's my taking i think it's built on yeah. Luther, and so i think that would be his criticism is that you don't need this sort of over-the-top reaction if you just have the solid promise of your sins are forgiven in the absolution or in baptism or the supper or where whatever that that actually brings the forgiveness of sins and so i know i'm forgiven because I ate the body of Jesus and he said, this is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. So the experience is able to be subordinated to the, the words and promises of God. All right. Very interesting. All right. So that was the first maybe modern contention I've seen people kind of throw around that I think you answered extremely well. The second one, and this one, it's, it's almost a joke on the internet, the Martin Luther insult generator, the all these things that people love to talk about how he has a, a bit of a wild tongue. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Because because in my perspective, I, I do I do understand where people, he does, you know, some of these insults do not sound nice, but I also kind of keep in my mind that Martin Luther is insulting people who are, you know, persecuting and killing some of his, you know, fr friends and people that are important to the movement. So in my mind, saying something not nice about somebody sometimes is not comparable. But I'd love to hear what you think about that aspect of him. Um, that, that I think a lot of people, genuinely, I've heard people say, like, I just don't like that about him. Yeah, yeah. You gotta, it's good to read Luther in context. I mean, it's just good to read the whole pieces <laughs> together. So those insults are kind of plucked out because they're kind of funny. And he did, he was very witty. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a reason why even the Calvinists quote Luther, because he's just so much more quotable yeah i mean john calvin had a few zingers here and there but um but so luther was a sinner so we should not be defending luther and saying he was sinless or even that mm -hmm. he was inspired um that he his authority comes from the word of god and when he brought the word of god we receive it as such when he didn't we throw it out it's no big deal in fact it's a misnomer that the lutheran church is has somehow considered lutheran authority we've We've picked about five of Luther's works and said, these are a true exposition of the scriptures, and we're going to stick with those. 
And the rest of his stuff is almost just to be taken into advisement. So small catechism, large catechism, small called articles, those are the chief confessional writings of Luther. We thank the Lord for them. Um, maybe this is helpful, though. In the beginning of his Galatians commentary, Luther says that when you're dealing with false teaching, you have to make a distinction between the false teacher and the falsely taught. And he's, he's especially looking at how St. Paul talks about the false teachers in Galatians and Philippians. I mean, in Philippians, Paul says, I wish, that you, you know, that those who are pushing circumcision, I wish they would mutilate themselves. You know, this kind of, or when, when he's anathematizing the, the gospel rejectors in Galatians chapter one. And, and so Luther says that we make a distinction between the false teacher and the falsely taught like we make a distinction when a dog bites the child. Mm. If a dog bites a kid, you kick the dog and you comfort the child. Mm. And so when there's false teaching, you have to make that determination. Am I dealing with a false teacher that needs the violence that the, the Holy Spirit demonstrates in the scriptures that the Lord has towards false teachers? Or am I dealing with someone who's falsely taught who needs to be dealt with comforted and, and consoled and dealt very gently with? So most of the time, when we see those kind of Luther insult generators, we're watching Luther kick the dog. Mm -hmm. um, there's a whole collection of letters. We're going to have a, a, a class on it this summer, Luther's Letters of Spiritual Counsel, where you see Luther consoling the child and speaking mm -hmm. with great tenderness, great gentleness, great patience and kindness. But on those big kind of famous works where he's saying, you, Pope, are Antichrist, and you, Erasmus, our Antichrist, and mm. you, Zwingli, our Antichrist, when he's making those big, bold theological claims, he's going after the false teacher, and he does it with uh, zeal. <laughs> okay. Do you think about how your iPhone affects your daily life as a Christian? I'm Adam. And I'm Chris. And this episode is brought to you by the Device and Virtue podcast, where we argue about the wrongs and rights of technology and faith in everyday life, from DNA tests to TikTok videos. Give us a listen, and this fall, check out our new online seminary course. It's called Theology of Technology, Church and Culture in the Age of Zoom. Find out more at deviceandvirtue.com. Thank you so much. So now you picked the sermon that we're about to listen to and you were just sending me an email before like, man, this is a good sermon. You're very excited about it. Can you tell the audience, tell people, you know, tell who, who is listening, what it is you're really hoping they get from it and what sure. is it that you just don't want them to miss for sure? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So this is Martin Luther's first Easter sermon from the house postal. It's on uh, Matthew 28. It's on the, the events and the power and benefit of the resurrection of Jesus. Here, here's the, Luther was a great Easter preacher, and and here's one of the reasons why. A lot of times, people want to set the cross and Easter against each other. So uh, you, you'll mention, so I'll, for example, this has happened to me any number of times. I'll mention the crucifixion of Jesus in the sermon, and someone will say, but, but Pastor, don't forget Easter. Don't forget that Jesus is risen, as if, as if, as if Easter is undoing the cross. Luther understands Easter as amplifying the cross. They go together. The one who's crucified is the one who's risen, but they are part of the same work. And uh, and here's how he'll do it. It's really rhetorically wonderful. He'll say, on, on Good Friday, 
you see your sins on Jesus. And then on Easter, you see Jesus. But there's no sin on him. There's no suffering. There's no dying. And you don't go asking where it is. <laughs> yeah. So Jesus carries your sin to the grave, but he comes out of the grave with no sin at all. So uh, maybe just a couple of words. You'll hear it in a few minutes, but it says, he's talked about how as the divine son of God, he has the strength to bear our sins. So he says, this load was taken from us and placed by God himself upon his son. So the load of our sin, the load of our death, etc. Who from it, who is God from eternity alone could bear the heavy weight of sin. Upon him, we now find our burden. Let us leave it there. For there is no one else to be found who could better relieve us of it. The other scene, Easter, presents to us Christ no longer in woe and misery, weighed down with the ponderous mass of our sins, which God had laid upon him, but beautiful, glorious, and rejoicing, for all the sins have disappeared from him. From this, we have a right to conclude, if our sins, on account of the sufferings of Christ, no longer lie no longer upon us, but are taken from our shoulders by God himself and placed upon his son, and if on Easter, after the resurrection, they are no more to be seen, where are they? Micah truly says, they are sunk into the depths of the sea, and no devil or anybody else will find them again. Hmm. So this connection of the crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, this theological connection is profound. It's profound for us and really wonderful to, to catch and to, and to rejoice in. Some of the best stuff comes at the very end. I think I, I've got double underlined the very last paragraph of the sermon. And so it's worth it to stick with it to the end, even though it's a bit of a longer sermon. Well, absolutely. I, I think everyone, I mean, I know, I, I think everyone is excited to listen to what, what we have here. I think Martin Luther is just one of those people that you can go back. There are certain people in church history, you just kind of go back to the well and keep learning from and going through. And Martin Luther is actually featured in our show, Revive Devos, where every day, every day of the week we hit a big uh, speaker. And Martin Luther is one of those days where it's just, we've been going to, through him for a year. And I, every time I always find something new and something exciting that I'm like, wow, I, I just, I really appreciate reading his stuff and just, there are just certain people that just have that ability. Uh, Brian, can you tell us, uh, tell everyone one more time where they can find you and what they can, if they want to hear more from you, where they would go? Yeah, sure. All the stuff uh, ends up on wolfmuller.co. And if you, in fact, if you go to wolfmuller.co slash Luther sermon, then there's a whole year worth of sermons that we recorded from Luther as well. So people should certainly listen to it first on your podcast, but if you can't, <laughs> if you can't get enough, you can find a bunch over there as well. So. All right. Thank you so much, Brian. We really appreciate having you on. Thank you. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning, and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall ye see him. Lo, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulchre with fear and great joy, and did run to bring his disciples' word. 
And as they went to tell the disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail! And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then said Jesus unto them, Be not afraid. Go, tell my brethren that they go unto Galilee, and there shall they see me. Luther's Sermon The present festival directs our attention to that conciliatory and joyful article of our creed in which we confess that Christ on the third day arose again from the dead. This requires us, first of all, to know and consider the Eastern narrative, then also to learn why this has happened and how to enjoy its benefits. The Easter events were these. On the evening of Thursday before Easter, when Christ had arisen from the, from the supper and gone unto the garden, he was betrayed by Judas and taken prisoner by the Jews. These dragged him from one high priest to the other until they finally concluded to give him over into the hands of Pilate, who, as governor, had the power to pronounce judgment. About the third hour of the day, sentence was passed upon him when he was led forth to execution and was crucified. At the sixth hour, about noon or an hour later, an earthquake occurred and the sun was darkened. Toward the ninth hour, which would be nearly three hours before sunset, Christ died upon the cross. This is according to the statement of Mark. The other evangelists do not state so definitely the hours in which these events took place. In our creed, we confess that Christ arose again on the third day, which is far different from saying that he arose after three days. The Lord was not dead three entire nights and days. On Friday evening, about three hours before dark, he died. These three hours are called the first day. During the whole night and day of the Sabbath, he remained in the grave, and also the following night until the next morning. This night counts also as a day, for the Jews begin their day with the night and count night and day as one whole day. We reverse this method of counting and call the day and the night one day. In the church, however, the old Jewish method of reckoning the festivals was retained so that these always begin with the evening of the previous day. Very early on Sunday morning, which was the third day after the Friday on which Christ was crucified, and at the first, of the, at the first dawn of day, when the soldiers were lying around the tomb, Christ, who had died, awoke to a new eternal life and arose from the dead in such a manner that the guards around the grave were unaware of his resurrection. From the account which Matthew gives of this event, we must infer that Christ did not arise during the earthquake, which evidently began when the angel descended from heaven and rolled away the rock from the entrance of the tomb. Christ, however, passed out from the closed grave without disturbing the seals put on it, just as on the evening of the same day he also came to the disciples through the doors which were shut. When the earth began to quake and the angel appeared, the soldiers were so terrified that they lost all consciousness. As soon as they recovered, they all ran from the grave, some in this, others in that direction, for the coming of the angel was to them no occasion of rejoicing, but one of terror and distress. There were others, however, who should be comforted by the cheerful tidings of the angel. While the soldiers ran from the tomb, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, also Peter and John soon after, came to see the sepulcher. When the women arrive, the angel comforts them, telling them that Christ is arisen, and that they should see him in Galilee. He also orders them to depart in haste and to announce these things to the disciples. As the women return from the sepulcher, the Lord meets Mary Magdalene in the guise of the gardener, and appears also to Peter, as John relates. 
In the evening of the same day, he joins himself to the two disciples who are walking to Emmaus and revealed himself unto them when he brake the bread and gave it to them. After these two disciples had hastily returned to Jerusalem to announce to the others what had happened unto them, how they had seen the Lord, and when the disciples were amazed at this, some, however, still doubting the truth of such reports of Jesus, suddenly appears in their midst, the doors being closed. John chapter 20. These are the incidents of the Holy Easter Festival in reference to the revelation of our Lord and Savior, as we learn from the evangelists. It behooves us to be well acquainted with these facts. They refer to the article of our creed which confesses that Christ arose again from the dead on the third day. The mere knowledge of these events, however, is not enough. We must also realize their meaning and importance. Of these we will now speak a little, for the subject is so fertile and inexhaustible that we could not fully present it though we preached about it every day of the year. If we desire to comprehend the benefits of the resurrection of Christ, we must keep in view two distinct pictures. The one is somber, full of distress, misery, and woes. It is the scene of blood presented to us on Good Friday, Christ crucified between murderers and dying with excruciating pain. This scene we must contemplate with much earnestness, as already said, to realize that it all happened on account of our sins, yea, that Christ, as the true high priest, sacrificed himself for us and paid with his death our debts. We ought all to know that our sins thus wounded and tormented Christ, and that his sufferings were caused alone by our iniquities. Therefore, as often as we remember our view or view this doleful, bloody scene, we ought to bear in mind that we have before us our sins and the terrible wrath of God against them, a wrath so dire that no creature could endure it, that all atonement became impossible except the one made by the sacrifice and death of the Son of God. If this also awful scene were the only one presented to our sight, and if it remained unchanged, it would be too terrible and painful. But this picture of sorrow is changed, and in our creed we join closely together these two articles. Christ was crucified, died, was buried, and descended into hell, and... On the third day he rose again from the dead. Yea, ere three days had gone by, our Lord and Savior presents to us another picture, beautiful, full of life, lovely and cheerful, in order that we might have the sure consolation that not only our sins were annihilated in the death of Christ, but that by his resurrection a new eternal righteousness and life were obtained. As St. Paul says, Romans 4, Christ was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. And 1 Corinthians 15, If Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain. Yea, ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life we only have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. As in the former scene, we saw the burden of our sin upon him and bringing him to the cross. So in this other scene of the resurrection... We witness no longer sin, pain, and sorrow, but only righteousness, joy, and happiness. It is the victory of life over death, a life everlasting, with which this temporal existence on earth cannot be compared. Of this we have reason to rejoice. Merely to view the former scene would be terrible, but when we view it in connection with the gladful events of the resurrection, and when we bear in mind why our Lord suffered thus, we will derive from such a contemplation much benefit and consolation. It will become apparent to us 
how inexpressibly great the love of God toward us poor sinners was, as he had compassion on our misery, even to such an amazing extent, that he did not spare his beloved and only child, but gave him up for us, to bear upon the cross and in death the burden of our transgressions, which were too heavy for us and would have crushed us to the earth. This load was taken from us and placed by God himself upon his Son, who, as God from eternity, could alone bear the heavy weight of sin. Upon him we now find our burden. Let us leave it there, for there is no one else to be found who could better relieve us of it. The other scene presents us to Christ, no longer in woe and misery, weighed down with the ponderous mass of our sins which God had laid upon him, but beautiful, glorious, and rejoicing, for all the sins have disappeared from him. From this we have a right to conclude, if our sins, on account of the suffering of Christ, lie no longer upon us, but are taken from our shoulders by God himself and placed upon his Son, and if, on Easter, after the resurrection, they are no more to be seen, where then are they? Micah truly says, They are sunk into the depth of the sea, and no devil nor anybody else shall find them again. This article of our faith is glorious and blessed. Whoever holds it, whoever holds it not, is no Christian. Yet all the world reviles, slanders, and abuses it. The Pope and his cardinals generally treat even this narrative as a fable to be laughed at. They are full-grown Epicureans who smile with scorn when told of an eternal life to come. Our nobility, our burghers, and our peasants also believe in a future life rather from custom than from true conviction, else they would act otherwise and not busy themselves solely with the cares, honors, and employments of this temporal life, but would rather seek after that which is eternal. But we may preach and explain as we will. The world regards it as foolishness. Thus we see that this article meets with opposition on every side. Even they who possess and believe the word of God do not take it to heart as earnestly as they should. If we desire to be true Christians, it is necessary for us firmly to establish in our hearts, through faith, this article, that Christ who bore our sins upon the cross and died in payment for them arose again from the dead for our justification. The more firmly we believe this, the more will our hearts rejoice and be comforted. For it is impossible not to be glad when we see Christ alive, a pure and beautiful thing, who before, on account of our sins, was wretched and pitiable, pitiable in death and in the grave. We are now convinced that our transgressions are removed and forever put away. In the strength of this faith, the early Christians composed and sang in Latin and German so, so charming and truly, Christ from all his sufferings has arisen, and will our solace be. Hence we all should now rejoice. And again, Christ, the innocent lamb, has by his sacrifice purchased and redeemed us poor lost sheep, and has through his innocence reconciled us to the Father. There was an amazing conflict between life and death. The Lord of life dieth, but having arisen now liveth and ruleth. Whoever composed these old hymns must certainly have had a proper Christian conception of the great event, else he could not have depicted so skillfully the scene when death assaulted life and when the devil madly rushed against it. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, permitted himself to be slain, yet death was much mistaken in his aim, for the life in this person whom he attacked was eternal. Death was not aware of this. 
and that an eternal and divine power was enclosed in the mortal body and was vanquished in the tilt. He attacked him who cannot die, though he, didn't, though he did die on the cross. For as surely as the human nature in Christ was dead, his divine nature was incapable of death, though it was so concealed in him during his passion and death, as our old teachers presented, that it manifested itself in no wise, and this for the very purpose that Christ might die. Death did all that he could. But since the Lord, according to his divine nature, is life itself, he could not remain dead, but freed himself from death and all his auxiliaries vanquished sin and Satan and now rules in new life, exempt from all disturbances of sin, the devil, and death. This is indeed a strange, perplexing declaration. Christ, though he died, still liveth, and by his dying despoileth death of all his power. Reason cannot comprehend this. It's a matter of faith. But to us, it is a source of great comfort to know and to believe that death has lost his reign, and that we owe this, praise be to God, to the one whom death attacks and overcomes, as he does all mortals, but whom he cannot hold. For in the struggle ensuing, death himself perishes and is swallowed up, while Christ who had died lives and reigns forever. St. Paul rejoices over this beautifully when he writes, Colossians 2, And you, being dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Two facts are here presented. He says in the first place, that Christ has with his own life blotted out the handwriting which was against us according to the law. By this the apostle means that we learn from the law what God demands of us, what we should do, and what we should avoid. If now we trespass against the law, either by omitting to do what we ought to do or by doing what we ought not to do, our conscience will accuse us of the wrong done. Thus our conscience becomes, as it were, a handwriting against us, in which we testify against ourselves as to our disobedience, and hence are subject to the wrath and punishment of God. The law makes this handwriting, as St. Paul says, for if there were no law there would be no transgression. Thus we have against us, at the same time, our sins, and the handwriting which convicts us of them, so that we must plead guilty even as a merchant would have to acknowledge his own signature and seal. Here the apostle would say, We receive the assistance of Christ our Lord. He blots out our handwriting, nailing it to the cross. That is, he makes a hole through it and tears it to pieces so that it can never again be used against us. To do this, Christ was crucified. He bore our sins and paid our debts with his own life. This is what we have to notice first in the words of St. Paul above quoted. In the second place, he says, Christ has spoiled principalities and powers. That is, he despoiled the devil of his power so that he can no longer urge and force Christians to sin as was his custom to do ere they were converted to Christ. Now they are enabled by the assistance of the Holy Ghost to resist the wicked one, to defend themselves with the gospel and faith so as to repel him and thus have peace. Under this end, Christ sends us his Holy Spirit. In a similar manner are the powers spoiled, that is, Christ has conquered death, whose power over us before was irresistible. 
Now the Christians have the weapon with which to conquer the devil and death. For these, though they rage and chafe and bring all their might to bear against the Christians, will not succeed, as St. Paul says, Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. As Christ has conquered death, so has he also vanquished sin. In himself, he was just and free from sin, but inasmuch as he assumed the sins of others, he became a sinner, as he laments Psalm 49, I said, Lord, be merciful, be merciful unto me, heal my soul, for I have sinned against thee. He prays thus, because sin is upon him. Nor does Christ seek to avoid this encounter with sin. He willingly goes unto death upon the cross as if he himself had sinned and merited death. As Isaiah says, he was numbered with the transgressors. And yet not he, but we had sinned. He merely came to our rescue and for our benefit took upon himself our load of transgressions. But his holiness, though buried beneath the sins of others, is so great that sin cannot prevail against it. Thus sin and death are thwarted in their intentions. They encounter a too valiant adversary. Death himself succumbs and is defeated in this struggle, as St. Paul declares. The devil also made haste to assert his authority and would fain bring Christ under his power, but he encounters a mightier one whom he cannot conquer. For Christ, though much distressed by his suffering and apparently overcome by the devil, is nevertheless strong and invincible. The devil was ignorant of this and loses all his power so that Christ can be said to have conquered the time when Satan was sure of victory. Hence these three terrible foes, the devil, sin, and death, are now defeated and under the feet of Christ. This glorious victory we celebrate today. Above all, we must firmly believe that in Christ there was a contest between God and the devil, between righteousness and sin, between life and death, between that which is good and that which is evil, between purity and all manner of corruption, and that the triumph was on the side of God. This scene we ought to cherish fondly and earnestly, and often to contemplate. In the former scene of suffering and death, we witnessed our sin, our sentence of condemnation, and death resting heavily upon Christ, making him a distressed, pitiable man. Now on Easter we have the other scene, unalloyed with sin. No curse, no frown, no death is visible. It is all life, mercy, happiness, and righteousness in Christ. This picture can and should cheer our hearts. We should regard it with no other feeling but that today God brings us also to the life with Christ. We should firmly believe that as we see no sin nor death nor condemnation in Christ, so God will also, for Christ's sake, consider us free from these if we faithfully rely upon his Son and depend upon his resurrection. Such a blessing we derive from faith. The day will come, however, when faith shall be lost in sight and full fruition. Nevertheless, while we are here on earth, we sin. Death, disgrace, and reproach, and all kinds of wants and infirmities remain with us, and we must patiently bear them. These all relate, however, only to the flesh, for in our faith we are already happy. As Christ arose from the dead and has a life eternal, free from sin and death, so have we these treasures in faith. 
And as surely as the devil could not prevail against Christ but had to flee, so surely will he also flee from the Christian who believes. In the end, our body will also be perfected, so that neither sin nor death can have power over it. For the present, we are as weak and sinful as other people, only that we strive to shun open and gross sins. It is true, Christians may also now and then be guilty of these, but they remain not in them. They flee them again through earnest repentance and obtain through faith forgiveness of all their sins. Hence it is impossible to judge a Christian aright by his external life and conduct. He may not be guilty of open, gross sins against conscience, yet he is not free from sins and infirmities. Therefore we must daily pray, Forgive us our trespasses. On the other hand, it may be that heathens and unbelievers in their outward walk of life appear before the world just as good, yea, even better than the true children of God. To know and judge a Christian correctly, it is necessary to make his faith the criterion. As to our flesh and blood, we are sinners, must die and suffer many evils upon earth, perhaps even more than others who have no faith, since Christians feel the burden of their sins and are troubled by them, while the others live in full security, undisturbed by their guilt. How then can Christians claim to be holy and free from sin? By believing that in Christ, who died for their sins and arose again from the dead, they have forgiveness upon which they rely and which they earnestly seek in faith. Christians only can do this, for to believe the forgiveness of sins and to seek it is the work of the Holy Ghost. Where the Holy Ghost is wanting, this faith is also absent. The enemies of the gospel, the Pope and his crowd, are living examples. They are great and abominable sinners, but they know it not, nor do they ask forgiveness and faith. If now and then a conviction of their sins breaks in upon them, they know not what to do. They despair. That Christ arose from the dead without sin is an unknown story to them. A Christian, however, has comfort and happiness in Christ in proportion to the faith wherewith he contemplates this scene of the resurrection. He views Christ no longer bloody and wounded, but in all his beauty and loveliness. For as he formerly, on account of our sins, was bleeding and crucified, so he has now, for our consolation and eternal life, full of happiness and joy. Let us therefore be glad and sing. All this happened in our behalf. These two facts then belong together. Through faith in Christ we are pure and holy. On account of the old Adam within us, we are impure and sinners. This impurity we remember when we pray, Our Father, forgive us our trespasses, and are comforted in the faith that God, for Christ's sake, and in the power of his resurrection, hears us and pardons us and gives us eternal life. Thus we are holy in Christ through faith, even if we are sinners. For it matters not how much is yet lacking in us, Christ our Lord and Head arose from the dead. He has conquered sin and death, and we, through faith in Him, are also freed from their power. Whoever does not believe in this and has not Christ will lie and remain under the dominion of sin in spite of all His good works and religious observances. Let us, therefore, earnestly view and study this joyful, lovely, and blessed Easter scene. It is a picture without sin and death. If sin troubles us, if our conscience accuses us of evil deeds and faithlessness, let us remember and exclaim, It is true we are sinners, nor can we deny the weakness of our faith. 
but we console ourselves with the knowledge that Jesus Christ has taken upon himself and borne our iniquities, and by his resurrection on this glorious Easter festival, sin and punishment threaten us no more. Say, devil, sin and death, why did you accuse this man before Pilate and nail him to the cross? Did you do right in this? And sin, death, and the devil will then confess that a mistake was made, that they wrongfully abused him. Then we can say to sin, death, and the devil, Get you gone. Molest us not. But perhaps our timid hearts will object and ask, How dare we rely on this? Are we not sinners? Be sure then to reply, Yes, it is so we are sinners. But that shall not cause us to doubt, since Christ is no sinner. He died and arose again from the dead for us, and the benefits of this are ours. If this does not satisfy you, settle it with him. Ask him what he did with your sins, whether they were too heavy for him, so that he could not bear them and had to lay them upon you again. He will surely be at ease, who thus can turn the devil with his accusations to Christ, who silenced him before so completely. This is the true doctrine concerning faith, which everyone supposes himself to possess and to understand. There are, however, but few who know it aright, for it cannot be taught merely with words. The Holy Ghost must do it. If you have mastered this art, you are a Christian. But if you are imperfect in it, thank God that you belong to the number of those who love to hear it and do not revile it as the Turks, Jews, and Papists do, who imagine themselves so upright that they are perfectly justified in the sight of God and need not this Easter narrative in their struggle with sin, death, and the devil. Among them, faith perishes entirely. May we learn utterly to disregard our own holiness and to keep before our eyes only this Easter scene, Christ arisen from the dead, the conqueror over sin, death, and hell. If we thus look to Christ alone and not to ourselves, just as our eyes do not look upon themselves while we are going forward, it will be well for us. May our Lord Jesus Christ grant us this in mercy. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Brian Wolfmuller. Definitely check out Brian Wolfmuller's website. Links are in the description below. Stick with us here at Revive Thoughts. We got some exciting episodes coming up in the next few weeks, but we will still have names that you've probably never heard of. One of our goals with Revive Thoughts is not only to remember these great recognizable names in church history and in sermons and in preaching, but also to shine a light on people you may never have heard of before. The timeless truth of scriptures is preached by a huge variety of people over the past 1900 years, and it's all worthy of being remembered or being documented and being shared. So the next time you see a, a name you don't recognize in that feed, give it a chance, give it a click on. You might find someone new that you, you never wasn't on your radar previously. This is Joel and Troy, and this is Revived Thoughts. This episode is brought to you by the Device and Virtue podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Adam. On Device and Virtue, Chris and I argue about the wrongs and rights Christians face with technology in everyday life. 
From smartphones to evangelism chatbots. To that selfie stick Adam shouldn't have bought. It's nice. Subscribe at deviceandvirtue.com.